0: It's good to see you guys. Welcome to the 9 o'clock service. Um, just one announcement this morning. Uh, the Zoom Bible study, we're looking at uh, the spiritual gifts, and we're in 1 Corinthians 12. And if you want to be a part of that conversation, uh, shoot me an email or a text, and I will send that link to you. And we meet at 1130 um, after the 1015 service. And so, it's, it's, uh, it's a really good topic, and um, if you're interested in it, uh, let me know. Okay, let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from First John. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 11th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to Me, all who labor labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. This reading is from Romans 7, and it follows up what we did last week. Now, in the bulletin, it has kind of a long reading. We're not going to do all that. I did that this morning in the first service, and it was just too much, and the thought gets really kind of discombobulated and confusing near the end of Romans chapter 7. And by the time I got there, I had forgotten what I had read from the actual sermon text. So we're just going to read verses 7 through 12. Uh, what then shall we say that the law is, this follows up, the thing that Paul taught last week, which I'll reset us in just a second. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead, So uh, last week, so, so Paul begins by asking the question, so what do we say that the law is sent? The reason why he asks that is because if you, were, if you uh, heard the sermon last week, uh, you'll know in the previous text he argues that you're not under the law anymore, and in fact the law is not on your side. Remember he said that you, you should think of the law less as a guidebook for getting from uh, Exodus to the promised land, for getting from your baptism to new creation. Think of it less as a guidebook and think of it more as a bad marriage. Like you're connected to the law and you can't get out from under it and you need to die. That's how, that's how bad the marriage is, is that you need to die in order to not be married to the law anymore. Well, then, of course, that gives the impression, right? That, so you're saying the law is sin. And he's kind of, it could be confused, confusing, it like he's kind of hinted around at that maybe. Remember, there's two ways of being human in Romans 5 and 6. In Adam which is natural, and it's controlled by sin and death and unrighteousness. And then there's in Christ, which is supernatural, and it's controlled by life and Jesus and righteousness and eventually us. And where does law come in? Which side is law on? Paul interestingly says law is on the side of God's law. The Torah is on the side of unrighteousness and the enemy and sin and death. So it could be misconstrued that he's saying, so that means the law is sin, right? So he asks the question, Does that, is that what I'm saying? Absolutely not. May it not be. Except for, I wouldn't know. He immediately heads off to another qualification. I wouldn't know what sin was if there was no such thing as the law. And then he gives that example about covetousness. And basically what he's saying is this, is that whenever the command, whenever the law comes in, sin always follows. That's the way it happens in the story, right? And he gives two examples. One is from Mount Sinai. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when did the commandment come? Well, it came in Exodus chapter 20. It came on Mount Sinai. And when that commandment came, what happened next? A rebellion. The people of Israel rebelled against God. They made golden calves. The commandment, far from guiding them safely to the promised land, actually stirred up in them idolatry. And the reason why is because that's what the commandment always does. From the very beginning, look at verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So when did sin deceive us and kill us? I think this is a reference to uh, Genesis 3, to the Garden of Eden, where the enemy deceived Adam and Eve and tricked them into sinning. And so this is the story that the Bible tells, is the commandment, far from being your friend to help guide you, to holiness or to the new creation, actually is stirring up unrighteousness in you. Now, but then the question is like, how does it do this? And this is this is for me. This was the interesting question from this text. Look at verse um, eleven again. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed. Me. How does sin use an opportunity? So that phrase "seize an opportunity" it, it pops up here in verse eleven. It also is back in verse eight. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment—that is actually language that in Greek refers to setting up like a military camp on the other side, like a base camp on the other side of enemy lines, from which to attack them. So sin uses the commandment to set up a base camp through which to attack us. And I told Angela it was like two weeks ago, and I was I was I told Angela like. I'm nervous and I'm excited about this text because I don't know, one, A, I don't know what it means. I'm, I'm nervous because I don't know what it means that sin used the commandment to trick us. How does sin use God's law to trick us into sinning? I didn't know how that happened, but I knew I was going to have to stand up here and talk about it. But two, it's exciting because anytime you come across something in the Bible, or actually in anywhere, any, anytime you come across something that you don't know, it's always kind of fun to learn it. But this was the question for me in the past couple of weeks, is the question of verse Verse 11. How does sin use God's law to trick me into sinning? And since Paul goes back here to the Garden of Eden, I think that's what we should do too. Now I want you to think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there and God has given them a law. It's not a whole lot of law, it's just one. You, you, should, you will not eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden. That's the law that God gave. And God gave them this law because... Um, as C.S. Lewis says in Paralandra, because he's God and they're not. And so there has to be some sort of way that that he's in charge. And as random as it might seem, don't eat from this tree. That's the rule that God made. The rule is designed to keep them safe, to give them life, to keep them healthy and happy and whole and in the garden and everything working smoothly. That's what the commandment's designed for. But Satan comes and he tricks them. And how does he trick them? He tricks them using the commandment, right? Now, Satan never attacks God's character. And he never never attacks God personally. He doesn't even attack God's law. He doesn't say that's a horrible law. He just says that it's a law. Right? I mean, maybe the tree's bad, maybe the tree's good, but Adam and Eve, the reality is, is that he's in charge of you. And you need to not be in charge of him. Like it's, in the story, it's not like eating that apple is going to suddenly make them like God. It's disobeying God is the promise that Satan makes them. If you disobey God, you can be like God. If you break his rule, like he's the rule maker. And if you break the rule, you'll get to be in charge. Like this, is, this is the primal sin for us too, right? Sin is not, sin isn't like breaking rules, breaking God's rules. That's a part of it, you know, certainly. But sin fundamentally, behind the rule breaking, sin is this, I do what I want. I don't want to be controlled. Which is why, Interesting enough, this is why he goes to covetousness as his example. Right, so the, here's the Ten Commandments, and you guys know the, the, the front one is, you'll have no other gods, and the back one is, you shall not covet. And all the commandments in the middle are these things that you can do or not do that are right or wrong, right? Don't commit adultery, that would be wrong. Don't steal, that would be wrong. Remember the Sabbath day, you should, you know, observe the Sabbath, that would be right. It's all these things that you can do or not do, or say or not say. But here on the ends are these two things that are less tangible. They're less definable. What does it mean to not have any other gods in front of the one true God? And that's related to not being covetous, not wanting what you want over what God wants. That's, so, what, anyway, here's what I'm saying. The enemy takes God's commandment and uses, it's a good commandment, but he takes God's commandment to trick them into sinning. He uses it as a tool to trick them into sinning just simply by saying, it's a commandment, and as long as that commandment is there, you're not in charge and he is, and that's oppressive. It's oppressive that somebody's in charge of you. This, this notion, by the way, this notion, this notion of Christianity as oppressive like you are the people who have like these rules on top of you. It's God's laws on top of you. It's one of the main arguments against Christianity, is that I couldn't ever be a. I, you know, this is you'll hear this frequently. You know, I couldn't ever like worship a God that would like tell me to do all these random things. But you guys, you, you, everybody knows who Christopher Hitchens is, right? He passed away a couple years ago, but he's kind of a, a ardent atheist. Uh, famous for writing, um, he's wrote a bunch of books, but his most famous book is God is Not Great. And in that book, he's arguing against Christianity and he says, actually against uh, religion in general, and he says this, Violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children, Organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. In other words, religion and Christianity here in the West is his main target, although he likes to pick on Islam too. Christianity is oppressive to women. It's allied to racism. It's oppressive to free thought. These are common things. So what's the basic problem that Christopher Hitchens has is it violates people's freedom. R- religion is used to like take away, like it, to oppress us to oppress people, probably not oppress me, I'm a middle-class white male, but oppress other people. It violates our freedoms. And so for him, this, for Hitchens, the solution is this, I continue, my own opinion is enough for me, and I claim the right to have it defended against any consensus, any majority, anywhere, any place, anytime. My, my own opinion, that's my foundation. That's what I want. I don't need a religion which tells me that my opinion is wrong or that tries to suppress me. My own opinion is all that I need. Right, this is just good, flat-out good Americanism. This is like, we're free. We, we as Americans, we define freedom as the absence of authority, like the absence of anybody in charge of us. John, l- Let me be philosophical just for a second. John Locke, who is probably the most important British philosopher in terms of the guys who framed the Constitution, like what went into their thinking. John Locke said this, which is this is like what we all, as Americans, believe about liberty. The natural liberty of a man is to be free from any superior power. Power. The natural liberty of man is to be free from any superior power. And not to be under the authority of man, but only to have the law of nature for his rule. And if you know anything about Locke, what he means by the law of nature is reason. Like your own rational, the conclusions that you come to with your brain. That's the only thing that should be in charge of you. And almost all of us, like if we weren't in a church right now and kind of had the notion that Somehow this is supposed to be about Jesus. Like if we were just sitting around a 4th of July, uh, you know, uh, bonfire and eating hot dogs, we would talk about freedom in this way, like this notion that we don't want anybody in charge of us. This is, and like I said, this is one of the biggest arguments against Christianity, is that Christianity fundamentally says there's somebody, God, who's completely in charge of us, and that violates everything that we personally as Westerners believe about freedom. Okay. Let me argue for a second if I can. Uh, so that's, that's the problem, right, is that the law is oppressive and the enemy uses the law as a tool, even though the law is good, the enemy uses the law as a tool to get us to disobey God. Let me argue for a few minutes if I can that that's actually wrong, that that's a misunderstanding of the law. And I'm not arguing against non-Christians or unbelievers. I'm arguing to Christians that what you and I actually think about the law, because be honest with me, you're lying to me if you say, no, I follow God's law, and it's just such this liberating experience. All of us have this sense that, like, well, we're not allowed to commit adultery. We're not allowed to steal. Or whatever it is that you want to do, you know, because we're Christians, and so we're not allowed to. There's this sense that, like, I, there's things I want to do, but I can't do because I volunteered to be oppressed. And what I'm not going to say in this sermon is, yeah, the law is oppressive. God's oppressive. But if you want to go to heaven when you die, you better be, allow yourself to be oppressed. What God is arguing in the Bible is that the law actually, far from being oppressive, is actually liberating. The law of God, used the right way, is actually liberating. And let me tell you what I mean. Let me give you some examples. First of all, let me just say this. this I mean, let me give you the negative side of what I just said. The postmodern notion as freedom to do whatever I want actually doesn't work. It doesn't work. Can I reference, again, I did this a couple weeks ago, uh, um, the lyrics to Desperado. The guy in the song, Desperado, wants to, like, his freedom is, I don't need anybody else in my life. I refuse to have another human being cramping my style. And the song, the singer of the song says, that's actually a prison, right? This is the point, is that this notion of, like, I do whatever I want, and so I'm free. I have no human being restraining me, to sort of semi-quote John Locke. And so that's my freedom, is that no other human being except for my own reason is in charge of me that doesn't work in real life. That's the worst kind of freedom. Let me tell you what I mean, let me give you some examples. Anybody uh, watch, I know a few of you did watch um, the uh, Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. So if you watch this, like what's, one of the things that struck me about like somebody, like Michael Jordan, who is possessed with this desire to be the best in the world at something, is the restraints that have to be put on him, that he puts on himself to get there. Right? Anybody who knows it, like if you, so I was thinking about my daughter Kate who just loves the clarinet. If you, if she, if she wants the freedom, she, okay, so let's say she wants to play the Mozart clarinet concerto. She is not able to do that. She's not free to grab her clarinet and do that. Unless she goes through the oppressive restriction of saying, I'm not gonna hang out with my friends on Thursday night, I'm not gonna sleep in on Saturday, I'm gonna pick up the clarinet, and I'm gonna practice it. If Michael Jordan, in game seven of the NBA Finals, wants the freedom to make the game-winning shot, he has to go through all the years of oppressiveness, of restrictions, to say, I'm not going home when practice is over, I'm gonna stay here and keep on practicing, I'm not gonna have my own life, I'm gonna devote myself to basketball. All of that oppressiveness leads to a different kind of freedom. I'll give another example. We all have friends like this, or we know people like this, who, you know, you're friends with them, but they're the kind of person who's like, I say what I think, man, I just call it like I see it. That kind of person who wants the freedom to be able to just say whatever they think about people is the kind of person who will be restricted in the number of friends that they have in their life. If you want the freedom of like having good friends, and being intimately connected with people and having somebody that you can rely on and somebody you can share your heart with. You have to go through the restriction of submitting to that person in that relationship. I don't get to say what I want. There are some times when I go, I sit down and I watch a movie that I don't necessarily like in order to be with this person. There's some time when I eat meals that I don't like. There's sometimes when I have long phone conversations that I wasn't planning on having because I was going to do something else as an act of service to this friendship. But if you want the freedom of like intimate friendship, you have to go through the restriction of actually the oppressiveness of being related to somebody else in friendship. It's like, the, it's like a train, right? So the train is completely free to go, super fast and free on these tracks. So the train is on the tracks, and, and, and the enemy comes along and he's like, you know what, there's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the tracks, but honestly, you can't, the way that your engineer designed you, You can't go off into that field if you wanted to. If you want to see what's on the other side of that field, you just can't. And so what do we do as trains? We use the good, the notion of the good tracks, which were created for our freedom. And we take that as oppression. And we leap off the tracks to try and get across the field to do what we want to do. And what happens is trains can't move in fields. We're stuck. This is how the enemy uses this. But but, My main point up to this point is this, is that that's a lie. That's deception. The notion in, our, in all of our heads, the notion that Christianity means oppression is a lie of the enemy. He's using God's law to tempt us to rebel against God, to tempt us to this primal sin of wanting to be like God and so against God. So I, so far, I've I just pointed out to you that the law isn't necessarily bad, but there's in some senses the law is liberating, if maintained, the way we're designed to be. But let me make it more clear from this passage exactly what that means. Verse 12, look down at verse 12 again. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous good. Paul wraps up this little discussion about is the law sin by saying, no, the law is not sin as much as as the enemy in our own flesh uses the law to make us sin. That doesn't make the law sin. In fact, the law is holy and righteous and good. And So now we need to talk about in Scripture what does this mean? Like What are we being pointed to? When it says that the law is holy and righteous and good, well, you know that there's nobody who's holy and righteous and good in Scripture, right? First Samuel two says this. I believe it's Hannah says, "There's no one holy but Yahweh. There's no one holy. There's no human holy but the Lord." We know that there's no one righteous. Paul says in Romans three ten, "There's no one righteous, not even one person." And we know that there's no one good. He says a couple of verses later in, in Romans three twelve, "There's nobody who does good, not even one person. There's nobody holy. There's nobody righteous, and there's nobody good." So what are we being pointed to? Well, we also know from Scripture that there actually is one person who is holy and righteous and good. In John chapter 6, Peter, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, are you guys going to abandon me eventually? And Peter says, no way. We can't. We know. We're know. we convinced that you have the words of life, and we've come to believe, he says in John 6, "Now we've come to believe, Jesus, that you are the Holy One of God. It's a crazy thing to say to another human being. You are, when we know from 1 Samuel 2 there's nobody who's holy, to say to Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. We know that there's nobody righteous except for this one man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Jesus Christ has become our righteousness. There's nobody who's righteous, but Jesus Christ is righteous. We also know that there's nobody good except for Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, this rabbi comes to Jesus and he's having this discussion with him and he calls him good rabbi. And Jesus says to him, why, why, why are you calling me good? Why would you say good? We all know that there's nobody good except for God. And what he's trying to get the rabbi to do is to do the math. Is to say, no, but you really are good. And Jesus is going to say, yes, but only God is good. What does that mean? Right? Jesus is righteous, Jesus is holy, and Jesus is good. So what I mean is this is how the law liberates you. The law liberates you by being a reflection of who Jesus is. If the law is righteous and holy and good, it's only because the law comes from God Himself. It's only because the law flows out of who Jesus is. And by looking at the law and by loving the law for what it is, you should be pointed to Jesus, the only one who's holy and righteous and good, the only one who can make us holy and righteous and good by binding us to Himself in such a way that when God sees us, He sees us as righteous and holy and good ones too. And at that point, the law begins to be what it was designed to be. Once Jesus binds us to himself and puts us back on the track, the righteous and good and holy law can make us fly free. What appears to be a restriction actually becomes liberating in Jesus Christ. Now, how does this look in real time? Again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. I can't tell you yet because we're not in Romans 8. And when we get to Romans 8, he's going to talk about life in the spirit. Because right now what he's saying is, the law is not sin. The law actually can point you and push you. So the, the law, we as Lutherans, we like to say this. The law points out our sin, and so it helps us confess. Paul's saying much more than that. He's, say, he's not saying that the law just helps us confess our sin. He's saying that the law looks like Jesus and should attract us to who Jesus is. And how does he do that? Paul's going to say it in Romans chapter 8, uh, by the Holy Spirit, by walking in the Spirit. More on that when we get to Romans 8. Let's pray. God, thank you for freeing us. Uh, We, as broken human beings, confess that we frequently think of our relationship with you as uh, restrictive and oppressive. Uh, But we know that this is not the case. We know that this is actually liberation. That we are running on the tracks that you designed us to run on when we are connected to you. And when we obey your law, we are being who you designed us to be. Work this in us. Put us back up on the tracks. We're so frail and infallible that this is not something we can do on our own. And so we ask you to do it for us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and we'll continue prayer. Let's pray. Father, we continue praying to you this morning, and let me just continue that prayer. Lord, I confess that I frequently feel stuck Uh, maybe even a touch jealous of those who have what looks to me to be like the freedom of not not being uh, tied to you and to your holy commandments. And God, that's just so backward thinking and it's such a lie of the enemy. Forgive me for that. Purify my mind. When my flesh, when the world, and when Satan rise up to tell me that you are restrictive, shout them down by your Holy Spirit. Like may your word be pouring through my brain and through your heart so that I see what is the true liberation of your commands. What is the true liberation of being united to you? Lord, in your mercy. Father, pray. Uh, continue to pray like we've always been praying, uh, always pray, but especially the past few months, for the health of everyone. That you would heal our sicknesses, that you would heal our diseases, uh, that you would heal the sicknesses and diseases of our world, that you would bring yourself glory by being the great physician, by restoring creation, and that you would give us a little foretaste of it now, even before your son Jesus returns, that you would give us foretaste of the healing power that you wield uh, through your son Jesus Christ and through your church too. And I pray, especially uh, this week, if I can, I want to pray for Barb who has uh, knee replacement surgery coming up, that you would uh, protect her and allow her rehab to, um, uh, to be quick and to be complete. Lord, in your mercy. God, I pray that you would give us unity. I'm still uh, weirded out by this whole uh, dividing up into three small groups and meeting in the sanctuary with masks on. and I, it's, not, it's not normal and it's not, uh, it's not what I want. But for whatever reason, in your sovereign will, it's what you've ordained for us at this time. Help us to submit to this and help us to submit to uh, your plan, your loving and good plan and do whatever it is that you're planning on doing for your own glory through all of this. We pray that you would do it and that you would allow us to be uh, your faithful worshipers and uh, being true to you and true to each other through the whole thing. Lord, in your mercy. And also, uh, Father, on this... uh, a weekend, uh, 4th of July weekend here in the States, it seems appropriate to thank you for freedom, uh, but not for the kind of freedom that uh, many of us thank you for, although that's worth thanking you for too, the civil and political freedom that we have here in this country. But for the much greater and much deeper and much more real and permanent freedom that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, the freedom to be on your tracks, the freedom to be loved and known by you, The freedom to be open and accepted with each other because your gospel has made it easy for us to be open and accepting with each other. The freedom to know what my future and what the outcome of this creation is. The freedom to live out the gospel in front of people. God, I thank you for this freedom and I pray that you would give me the boldness to live this freedom out, the freedom in Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things. Uh, because of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, which covers us completely, which allows us to come into your throne room, into your holy presence. Amen. Let's confess our faith uh, together with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, and I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Uh Oh.